Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be able to share with you today. And uh, it's wonderful to pick up from where we've been heading over the last few months. You know, David did a brilliant job kicking us off at the beginning of the year, envisioning us about who we are, about God and his plan and his purposes, talking about the unchanging person of Jesus Christ, about the unshakable kingdom that we're a part of and the unstoppable mission that we're on. And uh, Chris, uh, Christopher and Deborah have been in Numbers 20 talking about the rock and the water from the rock and what that means for us. And so today we're going to carry on in Numbers and we're going to move to Numbers 22, 23 and 24. And we're going to look at two very interesting men, um, a man called Balaam and a king called Balak. And we're going to look at the way that they want to try and influence the nation of Israel. And the story that we read in 22, 23, 24 of Numbers sort of takes place outside of the camp. It's a different perspective. It's a different place. And it's about how they are trying to influence God's people, but how God intervenes on the behalf of his people and how God did it then and he's doing for that for us today. So for us to look at this story together, we're going to go out first. You're going to come with me for a run. That's why I'm wearing this. Um, really, it's not proper preaching garb, is it? I'm, going to wear, but I'm wearing this because we're going to go out to a place where we're going to tell the story, set the scene, and then we're going to come back here and look at Balaam's prophecies and look at what that means for us today. Okay, let's go. Just before we get into Numbers 22, here I am, uh, just at Croft Hill, which is just down the road from us. And I can just imagine um, this pretty flat around here. You know, Israel camped on the plains of Moab. They travelled uh, from the south to the north to the edge of the Jordan River. They were just to the east of the Promised Land. On their journey, they'd been attacked by Canaanite armies and Amorite armies. And the Amorites were led by two kings, Sion and Og, and they defeated them both. And now they'd arrived in Moab and the Moabite king Balak was scared that God's people would attack him. They had no intention to do so. God had told them to leave the other nations alone. They were heading in a totally different direction. But Balak was afraid the Moabites and the Midianites were afraid. And so they decided to get the help of a strange and mysterious man, a man called Balaam, who was a very famous prophet, a very famous sorcerer and diviner and seer. And he lived about 400 miles away. That's how famous he was. This wasn't just some local guy. This was a man of international renown. And they wanted him to come and curse Israel so that they would be weakened for the benefit of the Midianite and the Moabite armies. We know that uh, there's other stuff outside the Bible that supports the existence of Balaam. And in fact, there's manuscripts that were discovered about 50 years ago that date to around 700 to 800 BC, not that long after the story, which was maybe around 1200 BC. The book of Numbers was, uh, de describes that period. And so off they go. They send these envoys up to Balaam in the hope that he will come for money to curse God's people. Let's see what happens next. You know, the next part of the story kind of unfolds around Numbers uh, 22 and, and really kind of gets interesting, verses 12 to 21 and, and, and further forwards as well. Balaam's envoys arrive after their three or four week journey up to Pethor and they ask Balaam if they'll come with them to curse God's people. Balaam seems to know that Jehovah Yahweh is the God of Israel and he says, I'll only go if this Jehovah lets me. That night God visits him. And speaks to him and says, who are these men with you, Balaam? And Balaam explains to God that they've come to ask him to curse God's people. And God says, no, you're not to curse my people. You're only to bless them. They're a blessed people. Don't go with them. The following morning, Balaam goes down and he says, God says, I can't go with you. Jehovah says, I can't come. He doesn't say because he won't let me curse you. He just says, he won't let me come. 
I think he's hoping that they're going to go back and come back with a better offer. Sure enough, they go back to Balak. Balak's not happy. He won't take no for an answer. Sends them back with an offer of even more money to curse God's people. Maybe six, seven weeks later, an even more important group of men travel to see Balaam and offer him again money, more money, to curse God's people. Balaam says, let me ask God again. And he asks God and God says, okay, Balaam, you can go, but only do what I tell you to do. And the following morning, it says, early in the morning, he got up, saddled his donkey and went with him. And God was angry that he went. Now, have you ever read this bit of the story and been confused? God says, don't go. Then God says, go. And now God is angry that he's gone. What we do know about God is he's totally consistent. He's the unchanging person. In fact, later on, he says, God is not a man that he should lie. He's totally unchanging. So what's going on? Well, the important thing is for us to understand the language in which it was written, which is Hebrew, and the difference between the words that are used. That in the English, we just have go and went, but actually the original Hebrew has different words. The first time when God says, don't go, he says, don't go with them physically and don't go with them mentally. Essentially, don't go with them in any way, shape or form, physically or go with their motives. The second time when he permits him to go, he says, you can go, but you can only go physically. Don't go with them mentally. Don't go with their same shared motives. And the following morning, when he says that he went, the Bible tells us, and it explains, and later on we read in Peter's letter, that he went with greed in his heart. He went with the full intention of cursing God's people for cash. And that's why God was angry, because he was going mentally as well as physically. He was going with a shared motive. And as he's traveling, this wonderful story opens up. Because all of a sudden we meet a donkey who can see the angel of the Lord when this incredible, renowned prophet can't. Tells us that as he's going, God sends the angel of the Lord with a flaming sword to stop him. And the donkey veers off into a field and then crushes his, uh, Balaam's foot against the wall as he tries to squeeze past the angel of the Lord. And then finally the angel of the Lord is blocking the road so much so that the donkey just lies down. And each time Balaam beats the donkey. And then finally it says God gives the donkey the ability to speak. I think this is the only instance when a, an animal speaks other than the serpent in the garden. And he challenges, or she challenges Balaam actually. It's the she donkey. She says, what are you doing? I've always been a good donkey to you. Why are you beating me? Balaam says, well, you're making me look like a fool. You stupid donkey. The donkey's not stupid. He's stupid. And God opens his eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord. And he finally realizes what's going on. And we learn in this wonderful little story that I totally believe happened, by the way, that God can show and reveal things to anyone he chooses. And he can cause anyone to speak on his behalf. And just as he did it with the donkey, he'll also do it with Balaam. And now Balaam is chastised. He knows he can only say what God tells him to say. And he carries up, look, look at this view. As if he's going to the cliff top to speak over this camp of God's people who are on the plains of Moab. So what happens next? So here we are at the top of Croft Hill. You know, Balaam and Balak finally meet. Balaam explains to Balak, I can't curse these people. I can only tell you and I can only say what God says. And I can only imagine as they stand on the top of the mountain and look at just a fraction, maybe a quarter of the camp of Israel, how phenomenal it looked down in the valley of Moab. You know, this view from up here is spectacular and beautiful. I love coming up here, but I can only imagine how amazing the tents of the Israelites, the camp of the Israelites looked from up there, from that vantage point. And it's from here, having built seven altars, that Balaam begins his three prophecies over the nation and then 
finishes with a fourth prophecy. And that's where I'd like us to go next, to look at these prophecies and to see how this man prophesied something that went beyond Israel, went even beyond King David. And his prophecies speak to us today. They matter to us today. They're relevant to us as God's people, as the church of Jesus Christ today. So let's see what we can learn from these prophecies. Okay, I'll see you back at the house. Well, it's good to be home and warm. And here I am sitting between a giraffe and a picture of a dandelion. And uh, particularly for you guys in Hot Rock, what I'd love for you to do in this next bit is draw some pictures. Because I'm going to read some of the prophecies of Balaam. So these are things that God says about us. This is what God says about the church. This is what God says about who you are, who I am, who we are. And so these pictures are that help, they're there to help us to understand more about that. So as I read these prophecies, as I read what God says through Balaam, I'd love for you to draw anything that kind of jumps out at you that you think, oh, I'd love to draw that. And then maybe think about what those pictures mean for us, why they matter and what they mean. And we can all do that. So I'm going to read through some of these and just pick out a few things that I think are really helpful to remind us of who we are today, who we are in this world. So Balak gets him to prophesy first time and this is what Balaam says in uh, Numbers 23 verse 8. But how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I condemn those whom the Lord has not condemned? I see them from the clifftops. I watch them from the hills. I see a people who live by themselves set apart from other nations. Who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as dust? Who can count even a fourth of Israel's people let me die like the righteous. Let my life end like theirs. So this is prophecy number one. He sees about a quarter of God's people. And Balak is not happy because he's just prophesied good things. He's just said good things about God's people. So he moves him to another place where he can see a smaller number of people. And so Balaam gets up and he prophesies again after making his sacrifices. And in Numbers 23 verse 19, he says this, God is not a man. So he does not lie. He is not human. So he doesn't change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? The answer is a resounding no, he hasn't. He is always faithful to his promises. He always acts on what he says. Verse 20, listen, I received a command to bless. God has blessed. I cannot reverse it. No misfortune is in his plan for Jacob. No trouble is in store for Israel. For the Lord their God is with them. He has been proclaimed their king. For God brought them out of Egypt. For them he is as strong as a wild ox. No curse can touch Jacob. No magic has any power against Israel. For now it will be said of Jacob, what wonders God has done for Israel. These people rise up like a lioness like a majestic lion rousing itself. Maybe you want to draw a lion, kids. That'd be a great thing to draw. And then 24, he comes into uh, chapter 24, the third time he prophesies, he moves him to another place, another vantage point. Balaam gets up and this time it says that the Holy Spirit came upon him. And in verse, 25, uh, tw uh, verse 5 of 24, he says, How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob. How lovely are your homes, O Israel. Maybe you could draw some tents. Or maybe you could draw these. They spread before me like palm groves, like gardens by the riverside. They are like tall trees planted 
by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Listen to this. Verse seven, water will flow from their buckets. Their offspring will have all they need. Their king will be greater than Agag. He is the unchanging person, the king, greater than any other king. Their kingdom will be exalted. We are part of an unshakable kingdom. God has brought them out of Egypt. We're on an unstoppable mission. For he, for them, he is as strong as a wild ox. He devours all the nations that oppose him, breaking their bones in pieces, shooting them with arrows like a lion. Israel crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse her. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses you. And then Balak flips out. He's so angry because three times now in three different places, Balaam has prophesied three times, blessing, blessing, blessing. And he's described God's people in such rich uh, and beautiful language. And we need to understand who we are today as the church. Just want to pull out some strands from these prophecies that flow in each of the prophecies that describe who we are. Firstly, we're set apart. We're a distinct people. In the first prophecy, he says, I see a people who live by themselves set apart from other nations. Is that not the church? We're the ecclesia. We're the called out ones. We're a holy nation. We're God's special possession. We belong to him. We're distinct and we're different and we should be so. And that's what he sees of Israel. That's what God says about us. So we're described that we're set apart. And then he goes on to say in the second prophecy, no misfortune is in his plan for Jacob. No trouble is in store for Israel. But actually, um, probably a better way to read these words is that no um, iniquity and no mischief are a part of God's people or there's no evil um, in them. And that's because he's describing Israel and he's describing his people, God's people, as a holy nation who belong to God by the covenant that he sealed um, by the blood of the Passover lamb. That's exactly what had happened and got them to where they were. But is that not who we are as the church, that we're God's covenant people, that we are set apart and we are purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, the, the once and for all ultimate Passover lamb, the one who's died in our place, we belong to him, we're set apart, we're holy, we belong to the king. And, and then in 24, it describes us as um, in uh, verse five, beautiful tents and lovely dwellings. Tabernacles is another word that's used there. And this description of us being pilgrims that were set apart, that we've been bought by the blood of Christ and washed clean by him. And then now that we're pilgrims. And, and if you turn uh, to 1 Peter he picks this up very much so in uh, in how he describes us. And these are familiar words. If you if you if you know the Bible, then you'll know these words. And he's talking here about the church. This is who we are. He says you are not like that for you are a chosen people. Here you go. Set apart royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Can you see that language that we're just passing through? We're in tents. We're not in tents. We're in tents. And we're moving through life. But this earthly place is not our ultimate destination. Our ultimate home is a heavenly inheritance. Be careful, therefore, to live 
properly among your unbelieving neighbours. Then, if they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your honourable behaviour and give honour to God when he judges the world. That's who we are. And I know that as a church that we live differently to those around us. We are different. We're different in how we spend our time. We're different in the principles that we live by. We're different in the way that we handle our money and our finances and our, and our homes and everything that we have. We're different in how we talk about others. We're different in how we talk to others. Why? Because we're set apart. That's who we are. That's number one. We're a distinct people. And secondly, we're a blessed people. We are so, so blessed. Uncursable. And in... Um, the first part of the of the prophecy in, in, in verse 8 of uh, Numbers 23 says, How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I condemn those whom the Lord has not condemned? He's, he's a man who has cursed and blessed and, and seen things happen as a result of that. But none of his powers will work against those who are blessed by God. No weapon formed against you or I will prosper. That's what it says in Isaiah 54. He goes on to say in verse uh, 23 of uh, in the second prophecy of Numbers 23, no curse can touch Jacob. No magic has any power against Israel. And maybe some of us need to hear that today. There's no curse. There's no magic. There's no spell. There's nothing anybody has spoken over you or about you or declared over you that can stand if you live under the blessing of God. God is greater than those things. God's promises are greater than those things. Listen to some of these verses. Psalm 109. Verse 28, let them curse me if they like, but you will bless me. When they attack me, they will be disgraced. I am your servant and I will go on rejoicing. It's a psalm, a verse full of exclamation marks. It's a shouty psalm, but it's declaring this, God, no matter what's thrown at me, I'm living in your blessing. Proverbs 26, verse 2, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. You know, Joseph said this, to his brothers at the end of Genesis, after everything he'd gone through, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for all, all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. And as I said already, Isaiah 54 verse 17, in that coming day, no weapon formed against you or turned against you will succeed or prosper. God wants us to live in blessing. And doesn't that flow through into the third prophecy in verse 6? That we are like palm groves, like gardens by the riverside. That's language that we read in Isaiah 58, well-watered gardens. Like tall trees planted by the Lord. That image is picked up time and again. Oaks of righteousness, again, that we read in Isaiah 58. Cedars beside the waters. That we don't worry about the seasons because we're watered from a different source. The living water that comes from our living saviour and from his Holy Spirit. Verse seven, water will flow from their buckets. Their offspring will have all they need. And there's that picture. There's that truth for us today that we are blessed to be a blessing. I could just picture somebody walking with two full buckets that are miraculously constantly full, full to overflowing. And as they walk from the well back to their home, the path that they follow, there's two lines of lush green grass of flowers that even if it's a desert everywhere else where they've walked is life. Abundant life. Why? Because water has just overflowed from them as they've moved from A to B. That wherever we are in our lives, as we move around, that we carry the, the, the life of God, that we, we have within us this imperishable seed, as Peter talks about. 
that we can expect that. And I, I see that time and again. I see the blessing of God in the lives of those in this church and other churches as well. I think about our neighbours that have got saved. I think about friends and family that are seeing the goodness of God in our lives. I was, I, I have the privilege of, of um, I had the privilege of, of taking uh, Lillian Birch's funeral, uh, just doing some, saying some words for her. And in the short uh, thing that her son sent to talk about her life, he mentioned how she changed when she got saved, that she had issues with anxiety that changed. The only thing that, that helped her with that was faith in God. And that then when their grandson came home from school one day with a migraine, she prayed for him and his migraine had gone within the hour. He wanted me to read those words and he'd seen this water overflowing from this lady as a result of her willingness just to pray and express the blessing of God. And I know we're doing that. I just wanna encourage you to keep doing that. Life of the spirit, this water that overflows. So that we know that we are a set apart people, that we're a blessed people, and that then we're a powerful people. Kids, I'm sure you saw these images, you heard these images of lions and, and lionesses. And that we're powerful because we're numerous. God is coming, Jesus is coming back for a numerous people. Who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as the dust? God promised Abraham multitudes. That's what we're reaching for, that we're praying that multitudes would be saved, that the fields are white for harvest and there's going to be a great harvest before Jesus returns. Imagine and think about that for, for our neighbours. Think about that for Narborough. Think about that for Market Harbour, for Tamworth, for Colville, for Broughton Astley, for Hinkley, for all of the places that we live in, to see those around us as being part of this great harvest, that we are many in number. That number is only going to increase. And then it talks about being like lions. You know, the Bible says, isn't it, the righteous are as bold as lions, that we can be bold, that we can trust that God is with us, that we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of COVID. We don't need to be afraid of, of what's around the corner. We don't need to be afraid of, of anything because we can trust God and we are part of an unshakable kingdom. We belong to an unchanging king and we're on an unstoppable mission that we can be confident, peaceful and strong. I see that in our own lives. I see that, um, she's not gonna say this, but in Sarah, I see that in her workplace. She goes to the hospital at the moment in challenging situations, that she's a, 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 a bold person, that she's a person who's faithful and has faith and has peace. And that people are drawn to that, particularly during times of unrest. When other people are being shaken, we are part of an unshakable kingdom. Why? Because our king is glorious. And in this fourth prophecy, just want to finish with this. Who does Balaam see? He sees Jesus. I believe he sees King David, but I, see, I believe he also sees the son of David and the orig originator of David, if you like, Jesus Christ. He says, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future, a star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. It'll crush the heads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls, the people of Sheth. Wow, strong language. But Jesus was the bright morning star. He is the morning star. He also in Revelation 19 is the rider on the white horse, dressed for battle, swaying a scepter, defeating his enemies, crushing the head of the enemy. Who's the enemy? Satan. Death, sin. They're the enemy that Jesus has already crushed the head of. Genesis 3.15, God's declaration of war after the fall, that yes, you might strike his, his, uh, her heel, 
but he's going to crush your head. The seed of the woman will crush your head. Who's the seed of the woman? Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. He came into the world. And when he died on the cross on Golgotha, on Skull Hill, as the cross was dropped into that and Jesus took on himself our sin and our sickness and died in our place, he crushed the head of the enemy once and for all. Ultimate act of head crushing on Skull Hill, the cross of Christ, the complete and utter perfect work of Jesus Christ. So I just pray that we're all encouraged today, that we understand and we read these words again. Can I encourage you to go back to them and just think about what it means for you and me to be set apart? What it means for us to be passing through, what it means for us to be blessed and how blessed we are, how secure and rooted and planted we are, how the water of life God wants to overflow from us, how he wants us to be bold and secure like lions and how we focus and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher and completer of our faith. I pray that you'll be blessed today. I pray that you'll be a blessing today. I know that you already are and I pray that you'll continue to be so. Thanks so much for watching. Just going to pray, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words that you spoke thousands of years ago, Lord, that resonate in our hearts today. That, Lord, we can understand today who it is that we are, who you've made us to be. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the unchanging king and unchanging person. Thank you, Lord, that you've planted us and rooted us on the rock, that we're part of an unshakable kingdom. And Lord, in the unstoppable mission that we're on, that Lord, your water of life wants to overflow constantly. You know, when Stephen Russell picks up next, he's going to talk a bit about um, something that happens later on as a result of, of Balaam's work. But I haven't got time to talk about that right now. But maybe have a little read around the story. And uh, I'm sure that will help you to understand then what Stephen talks about when he picks that up in a couple of weeks time. All right, be really blessed. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.